Before we jump in there, let me just, uh, first of all, say hello to the other Western North Carolina campuses, but even more particular, let me just say thank you. We had somewhere north of 300 volunteers helping somewhere, and this six weeks ago, we didn't even know we were going to have a vacation Bible school, so six weeks ago with COVID and all that, we're like, we, in six weeks, not only did uh, Jenny Taylor and her phenomenal a team of all the different children's leaders all over the different campuses, but also the hundreds of volunteers uh, that jumped in there in the last six weeks and prepared and prayed and trained, so great, great job. I cannot thank you enough. You made a huge, huge difference, so again, put your hands together and Thank those volunteers that jumped in. Many of them took a week off of work and said, you know what, I am going to invest in that next generation, and God blessed with that. Hey, and secondly, uh, since uh, we opened up actually three different locations during pandemic, I mean, who would do that? Um, we did that in three different locations, so because... The pandemic was kind of raging when those opened. We did soft openings, which means we didn't really push into the communities that we are trying to reach. But now that at least we've gone to the next phase, uh, be in prayer for three different campuses, Espanol campus, uh, the uh, West Asheville campus, and the brand new Brevard campus, because all in the month of July, they are all going to have a grand opening, which means this is our first formal big outreach into the community. So be praying for them. And if you're at one of those three campuses, man, we love you, and just pray and prepare and invite and do all those things the grand openings entail, and we cannot wait to uh, come alongside, and we got a few surprises, even at their grand openings, no matter what campus you're at, all right? So Matthew chapter 4 is uh, where we're going to be. Let me uh, open up with this. If we've planted a church or helped plant a church in London uh, right before COVID, all right? And one of the things, there was a small team, we went over there to be able to kind of figure out, hey, you know, where's a good location, and how do we support that team, and you know, what does it look like with boots on the ground, all of that kind of stuff. And I'd never been to London, so one of the things that we did, and one of the things I discovered is that there is an intense and an intricate uh, subway system in London, all right? And you can get lost very, very, very easily, all right? There are multiple levels. There's somewhere along the lines of 270 stations. It serves like 3.7 million people every single day. I mean, it is crazy. Uh, one time I actually got up out of my seat, my phone dropped out of my back pocket, I was about to exit the, exit the train, and a very nice lady, I think she was an angel, is like, here sir, you are about to lose your phone, and I'm like, thank you, Jesus, that would have, uh, I mean, being on a train and having that, trying to track that down, so hey, a little bit of faith in mankind was restored, but one of the things I noticed, very intricate, you can get lost very easily, the saving grace when you are in that subway system and unfamiliar with how to get out is all over, all over the place. They've got this one sign done in different ways. And all it says is, you know what, the way out. I mean, you see them everywhere. It's just like the way out. Here's the way out. Here's the way out. The way out over here. So it's like, I don't know where to go. I don't know how to get out. I don't know where I'm supposed to go. Then all you got to do is look for these signs that simply say, you know what, this is the way out. If you go and follow this sign, you will find yourself at some point up above ground where you can then kind of take stock of here's where I am and here's where I need to go. I say that to say this. When it comes to the subject we're looking at today, oftentimes God's people, they get lost in this. They're not sure where to go. When we fail, we're not sure which exit to take. And the area we're going to look at today is how do we get out of, what is the way out of when it comes to temptation? Now, here's what I've noticed doing this deal for like 30-some-odd years. Oftentimes, believers get stuck in this spiral. This spiral is like a thought comes to your head. A thought, a bad thought comes to your mind. I ought to do this, or I could do that, or I could cut corners over here, or I could take a shortcut over here, or I can make this bad choice over here. You and I get the thought, then we choose to sin, we choose to cross God's boundaries, and then shortly thereafter, sometime thereafter, all of a sudden, if you're a believer, there are feelings that come on the other side of the sin that we commit. Feelings of maybe frustration or guilt or shame. And then certainly on the heels of that usually comes the promises. God, I'll never do that again. I promise I will never do that again. And sometime later, maybe a day, maybe a week, maybe a month, you find yourself in the same situation. 
And what I've noticed is if that spiral goes on long enough, if that spiral goes on long enough where you have a thought and then you fall to the thought and then you have this shame and this guilt and then this promise and then you go back to the starting line and do it over and over and over again, pretty soon one of two things will happen. Either the Christian will kind of just bail out. You know, it's like, you know what? Something's wrong with me. Something's just wrong with me. I see these other people in church and they got their hands raised and they're fired up and they don't seem to be struggling with any kind of sin. Something's wrong with me. I'm just, I'm out of here. Or secondly, a little more subtly, we tend to think something's wrong with the gospel. Something's wrong because you know what? I don't see any change actually going in on in my life. And you live a, you stay in, but you live a defeated Christian life. And Christian, I just want to tell you, Jesus did not die on a cross and then come up out of that grave for you to live some kind of Eeyore defeated Christian life. That's not, it's not just to take your carcass to heaven. That's not the only reason. It's that you and I could live for the glory of God and the good of other people down here. And so what we're going to do is we're going to walk through a mysterious yet profound passage that is actually found in all, the, all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's called, and usually in your Bibles, it might have a little heading that says the temptation of Jesus. And it's super, super important passage. It's where Jesus defeats temptation. And what you just got to understand in this passage is, is he not only defeats it and shows us the way out of temptation, but you need to understand a lot hung in the balance when this happened. A bunch hung in the balance. In particular, you and I hung in the balance in this scenario. If Jesus had succumbed to temptation, he could not be the sinless substitute on a cross for your sin and my sin. If he had actually fallen into temptation and sinned, he would have had to die for his own sin and therefore couldn't die in our place. And so theologically, a lot was at stake in this scenario. What you got to understand is, listen to me, what you have to understand is, whatever your temptation is, there's always a lot more at stake in a temptation than you think there is. There is always a lot more at stake in a temptation than there appears to be at the start. In the moment of temptation, all it feels like is a tweet. All it feels like is a phone call. All it feels like is a lunch with a business associate. All it feels like is just a, a Google search on your search engine. But you got to understand, this impacts your future. It can impact other people's future. There's shrapnel, there is collateral damage in our sin, usually to our loved ones. And if you're young, you have a lot of future at stake. If you are old, you have a lot of legacy at stake. And so when we go through this passage, the bulk of it deals with the three temptations, the three streams of temptation that I promise you, every temptation you will ever face in this life, somewhere in the background are these three streams. But before we get there, the first couple of verses are crucial to just understanding the big picture of temptation. So Matthew chapter 4, I've highlighted the three words we're going to go to as we set it up. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, first word is then. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be, second word, tempted. What does that even mean? By the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, in probably the most obvious verse in all of the Bible, <laughs> he was hungry. He was hungry. All right, just so if, if you've never fasted before, once you fast, if you fast for like, if you're like on day two, everything looks like a chicken McNugget. I can just promise you at that point if you've ever done that. So he was hungry, but there's a reason they put that in there. You're dealing not just with the deity of Jesus, you and I are dealing with the humanity of Jesus in this passage. And so the writer's like, I want you to understand, he was hungry. We'll come back to that. Three words here. First word is then. Then. Then is a connecting word, connecting chapter 4 back to chapter 3. If you remember, the chapter divisions were put in later so that we could kind of find our way around God's word. But the way chapter 3 ends is a high point. 
Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, and that a voice from heaven came out and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That is a high point in scripture. That's a high point in Jesus' life. I mean, think about it. I mean, how awesome does it make you feel when your dad says something awesome about you? Dude, I'm over 50 years old, and I still think about some stuff my dad told me before he died. And think about it. If you have somebody who's like, this is my son, and I am well pleased with him. So don't miss that connection. Right after a high point comes a low point. Right after a voice from heaven spoke, a voice from hell speaks as well. And so there's a principle you need to understand as well, is that right after you've been on the mountaintop, understand Right after God does something significant in your life, the devil is going to come right on the heels of that, trying to pick the seeds out of your life that God has planted. And we've had a lot of good stuff. We're kind of reemerging from this whole COVID deal. Over the last 30 days, we have seen, I don't know how many people profess Christ and then follow through in baptism. You pray for them. Pray for them. Why? Because one guarantee you have is all of a sudden they might have been on the sidelines and I can promise you they now have resistance as a follower of Jesus. And so that's when it happens. It says, then it happened. Second one is this. It says, he was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, let me, let's talk frankly about this. The word there is, means slander or accuser. It's the word we get our word Diablo from. That's, we're talking, and I know some of you, there's probably, I don't know, half and half. We'll just take a guess. And some of you are like, okay, come on, man. You really believe in a literal devil? And I, I mean, you really believe in that guy with the pitchfork and the spandex and, uh, you, know, the, you know, the horns and all that kind of stuff? I mean, I would say this, yes and no. I certainly believe in a literal devil, but I don't believe in that devil. That's more, that's more Disney than good doctrine. That's what that is, all right? So the, the Bible never, ever, ever talks about the devil as some kind of cartoonish figure that's going around, and it'd be awesome to hang with him for a little while and party. It's like, I want to party with him. No, you do not, all right? So let me just say this. It's interesting is in our Western world, it's actually kind of taken a, a little bit of a uh, boomerang in the last maybe 30 or 40 years. Because about 30 or 40 years ago, you heard a lot of intellectual people's like, man, that is, that is the silly, how naive it is that you believe in a literal personification of evil. But now, and probably some of it is because we now can see some of the um, amazingly wicked evil stuff almost virtually every day, all right? From trafficking children to abusive people, and we see that much more clearly now, whether it be the internet or social media or whatever. I found this is an interesting quote from a scholar out of Columbia, Columbia professor. He said this, he said, quote, a gulf is opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. What was he saying? He's like, you know what? There's a gap. I can't explain every evil thing just by some social construct or some Darwinian way to look at life. He's like, there's something beyond that when you look at some of the intense wickedness. And I would say... Uh, I would say, actually, you are naive if you do not believe in a literal devil. I would say you are the naive one, not me. I would say this, Jesus obviously believed, obviously believed in a literal devil. And when you look at it, if you believe in God, the idea that there is an evil supernatural force is, is not strange. It's not a stretch. It's not a stretch at all. Matter of fact, I would say you're naive if you think, if, if you actually think that the Holocaust was all it was, was about one evil man. If you don't think there was some demonic stuff going on behind that, I'd say you're naive. If you think there was not some demonic stuff and it was more than just an economic framework that put slavery in our country, I would say you're naive. I would say you're naive if you think the only thing behind your pornography problem is just simply you lack self-control. I would say you are naive. I think you are naive if you think the only thing going on with the tension between you and your wife it's just the fact that, you know what, we're incompatible. I would say you are naive. If the only thing you think of is, you know what, this rebellion by my kids, that's just hormonal, they'll get over it. I would say you are naive. And so the Bible speaks of this 250 times just in the New Testament alone. Peter puts it this way. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone 
who he may devour. So he says it's a lion. Is it not every year we hear the basically the same story? I read, I looked it up and I got multiple examples. I'm like, which one to pick from? So I'll pick one that happened just last year. They're driving through these safaris and they think, hey, we're kind of cool. We got these lions out there. What could go wrong? What could go wrong? And they just, they get sloppy. They get careless. They leave their doors unlocked. Or for Pete's sake, the one I read, she put her window down. She put her window down driving through a safari with lions. Lions. It's funny, and it probably was funny to them until the lion, and actually this one case, she gets out of the car so she could then get a good picture of the little kitty. And what happened? The little kitty turned on her and drug her away and ate her. Like, well, I don't, that's shocking in church. My question to you is, we do the same thing. How careless do we get? The Bible is telling us that you have an enemy that is like a lion. If I told you, hey, when you leave church today, the zoo called and there's a lion waiting for you right out there. Would you not proceed differently? Would you not say, hey, you slow people, you all go first. Whatever it would be, you're like, you know what? I'm going to proceed differently because there's a lion out there and you don't mess with a lion. But I would say as much as we do that, if we actually believe what's going on here, please hear me on this. The enemy of God, who's not Disney, who's not cartoonish, he's not sitting there with a pitchfork, please hear me on this, wants to bury you. bury you. He has no mercy. He has all the time in the world. And he wants to bury you. Jesus said the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. He wants to kill. He wants to kill your marriage. He wants to destroy your testimony. He wants to steal your self-esteem, your godly identity. He wants to steal that. And he will be persistent in doing so. So we don't want to be hyper-paranoid. When you talk about the devil, you've kind of got two different camps that go into the ditch either way. you got the hyper-paranoid that blame everything they ever do on the devil. You know, they're like, oh, my car wouldn't start. Man, I got the demon of a bad battery. It's like, well, no, you don't. You just got, you got a limit of a car. You need to just get jumper cables. That's what you need. It's not the devil, right? Some of you are like, man, my, 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 the devil's in my hair. It, it, it won't, it won't, it's getting curly, all right? That's, listen, that's humidity is what that is. That's, that's all that is. On the other hand, on the other hand, I would say, for most of us, it's not that problem, it's the other problem. It's like, what, you know, what, what, whatever. What, an enemy? Come on, man, this is the 21st century. And so, as soon as I said the word temptation, different things popped into different people's minds. I already know it. When I said the word temptation, different stuff popped into your mind. For some of you, it was simply like, uh, it's just food. You know, it's just food. You know, I'm trying to stick to this carnivorous, keto-ish. I'm, I'm trying to do that. I'm not, you know, it's a cookie. That's, that's, your, that's your temptation. For others of you, it is uh, people. Maybe it's the boy that your parents have said, you know what, stay away from him. He's bad news. Don't do that. For others of you, it's a coworker at work who's a little flirtatious with you. All he's telling you is how awesome you look today. All she's telling you is how tremendous that presentation was that you made in front of the board the other day. Never seen anything quite that good before. Others of you, it is a business decision you have now. 
One of them is asking, it's telling you got a huge amount of upside, but it's risky, maybe even borderline unethical. You don't feel great about the people who are in it, but you're like, technically, there's nothing wrong you can find. And it's just sitting there waiting for your answer. Others of you, it's a computer at your house, and you can't, you're like, I don't want to do it, I don't want to click that site again, and you click the same site over and over again. Others of you, it's a prescription that, you know, has long been exhausted, and all of a sudden you're kind of double dipping, or triple dipping, or quadruple dipping, or getting different doctors, well, I'll get this, because after all, you know, I had pain, my pain's gone, but I just kind of like it, it makes me feel good, and it's, all, it's, just, it's like a moth to a flame, we're just going after it. So let me, I'm going to show you a video, I'm going to make, a, I'm going to make an illustration, and then we're going to do a definition. So let me show you a quick 30 second video, you all look kind of nervous. No, no. No, no, Elsie. Elsie. Elsie, no. No, no, yeah, good job, no, no. Okay, so here's what's going on there. First of all, if you didn't, before you write me an email, those plugs were plugged up, all right? There was no chance that she was going to get her little finger in that electrical socket, all right? Tyler and Carissa are amazing parents. What was happening, though, is that's it. That's it. It's like, I know I, I don't know why I want this so bad. Something's going on. I want to touch it. I mean, who, you got toys worth a hundred bucks and all I want to do is put my finger in a socket. What draws you to that? I do not know. But then you have a loving parent wooing you back. Come back. Don't do that. That will hurt you. You will not like the result of that. Don't go there. And so let's kind of put a definition up. Here's a definition of temptation. It is an invitation to do wrong that will destroy you in some way. When the devil, he says he went out and he tempted Jesus. The word temptation there or tempted is actually a morally neutral word. It could mean test or it could mean tempt depending on what the motivation is behind the person putting it out there. This one's obviously wickedness and so temptation is an invitation. It's an enticement. It's a lure. Loved ones, it's bait. It's bait. And here's the thing about bait. Bait, it's not tempting. It's not temptation unless it's actually tempting. You're like, did you spend all week coming up with that line? Actually, I did. And the point is this. Is, uh, it's like, there's some things that you're not tempted by, but other people are tempted by. So um, it's an invitation. That's all it is. It's dangling something in front of you to try to say, you deserve this, this will make you happy, and let me hide the consequences behind it, but this is what you need. In fishing, we call that a lure. A lure. And different lures are for different fish, but the whole concept is the same. All right? No fisherman takes a plain old hook and dangles that in front of the fish. Here, fishy, fishy, fishy. Hey, come here, fishy. Come here, bass. Come here, little rainbow trout. I have nothing but good intentions for you. Never, ever, ever. They don't. What do you do? You don't get old some nasty little hook. You get some, some flash and swag. That's what you get. you get. You get something like this bad boy right there. And you start, come here. Come here. It's that little kitty kitty. It's like, come here, little fishy, fishy. And a good fisherman will sit there and he'll... They're such an artist, they will pop it in such a way is where all of a sudden, like a tractor beam, that fish is like, must have, must, 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 must have. The whole thing about these lures right here, the whole thing about tying a different kind of lure, all that stuff, he's got one thing, attract the fish and hide the hook. Please do not tell your kids temptation is not tempting. Please don't tell your kids, oh, temptation is not fun. If temptation is not fun, 
You're doing it wrong. That's all I'm saying. You're, just, you're doing it wrong. Temptation is tempting because there is a short-term burst to say, this is awesome. And so um, it's, an, it's, it's an enticement. And here's, here's, before we jump into the three streams that it comes from, here's what you see is it's different for different people. But here's the one you got to be careful of. Just like this was a vulnerable time, in Jesus' life, he fasts for 40 days. He's tired. He's out, he's out in the middle of, if, I meant to put a slide up there. It's got this, it's just desert. It looks, it, did, it looks like West Texas. I mean, that's what it looks like where he is. You need to be careful when you have areas in your life that you are frustrated in. Because that typically is the area where the lure will dangle. You're frustrated with the way your marriage is going. Don't be surprised when the lure comes out. You're frustrated in your business. Do not be surprised when the lure dangles in front of you. You're frustrated with just life and just, don't be surprised. That's when the, where your frustration is, is oftentimes the one that's like, you know what? That's where I'm going to dangle the temptation. You're like, dude, can the devil read our minds? He cannot. He can't. He's not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He's none of those things. He's just a studied us for a long time and he's not even very creative he's not he's crafty but he's not even creative matter of fact as we go through this here's what I would say is you're gonna see three basic processes that he uses every single every single time John says it this way in his little epistle in first John he says all of it is in the world the desires of the flesh the desires of the eyes and the pride of life that's not from the Father but it's from the world. All right, so let's work our way through the rest of the text. Here are the three streams. Stream number one, and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, which he says every single time in all three, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So what's the first stream? And I was trying to struggle. How do you put this? Because they somewhat overlap, but there are some distinctions. So I struggled. How do I put this in a way that you and I, we can grab a hold of it? And so here's what I came up with. Number one is, stream number one is you want to feel something. You want to feel something. In that KJV, in that first John passage, it's called the lust. The lust of the flesh is what it's called. The lust of the flesh. So what does that look like in this story? So Jesus fasts for 40 days and he's hungry. He's fasted for 40 days. He's hungry. The temptation is, you're hungry. You can meet this need. This is in his humanity. Jesus was, again, tempted. He was enticed. Temptation is not sin. It's an invitation to sin. And in his humanity, he was tempted. He was tempted. Now, again, it's different for different people. The lure is different. For example... I have never in my entire life had a temptation to eat lima beans. Never, ever have I said, man, I'm really struggling trying to cut these lima beans out. I never struggled. Have I ever been tempted at all when somebody's like, here, you want a free kitty? Or here's a $50 kitty. Never, ever, ever, ever thought to myself, man, that is so hard to resist. Never have ever done it at all. And in this situation, there's nothing wrong with actually the bread, right? Nothing wrong with bread at all. But no, it's not God's will for Jesus to do that at this time. He'd been led by the Spirit too fast. So what is this whole desire to feel? What does it look like? It looks like this. You deserve this. You want to be happy. It's that feeling of, I don't like what it feels like right now, and I deserve this. So I'm going to go outside the design of God to make sure that I feel the way that I should. Or another way to put it, it's taking a legitimate need and trying to get it met in an illegitimate way. It's taking a legitimate God-given need like hunger and then trying to go around God's design to get that need met. There's a thousand different examples about this. Uh, it's the... Uh, it's the person who hears their biological clock ticking. It's like, I want to get married. I want to have someone that I can share life with. And 
nobody's on the radar screen, and she's a believer, or he's a believer, and all of a sudden what happens is this. It's like somebody comes on the screen, they're not a believer, and the temptation is, hey, I'm going to get involved, or I'm going to marry this person, and hope that they come to Christ later, thinking that, you know what, God will understand. He understands that, you know what, I really, 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 really need this. It's a... I mean, it's a thousand different things. It's the relationship. It's, uh, it's the addiction. It is, it's the gossip. It's the, uh, man, it is, it is, God, how many times have I seen this? It is, it's the affair. That's what it is. It's the affair. What's the affair say, guys? What does the affair say? You're frustrated in that area. The bait gets dropped. And you're like, I deserve to be happy. God wants me to be happy. My wife isn't acting like she's supposed to act. And an affair is exactly what it sounds like. It's like a fair. What's a fair? A fair is like an escape from reality where you ride the Ferris wheel and you watch the little, you know, you watch the kids play. That's an affair. It's an escape from reality. That's what you got to understand. It's not real. It's not real. It's not real. The reason she's so attracted to you and flattering you so much is she doesn't know what your wife knows. That's true. She doesn't know you like your wife knows you. And when you go ahead and you grab that hook, I promise you, she will. And so will your kids. And what the, the, what the lie is, is what he does all the time. Jesus said, you know what? Satan is the father of lies. That's his M.O. That's all he's got in the toolbox, folks. It's all he's got. As the father of lies, here's two lies he'll say all the time. First one is this. You have a need that God can't meet. You have a need God can't meet. There's some need in your life, and God's not coming through for you. I mean, think about it. This goes way back to like Genesis 3 and Adam and Eve. What do you say? I mean, they had no needs at all. They had none. The only thing they were supposed to do is run around naked, be fruitful and multiply, and then subdue the earth. I mean, that's like three rules. That's the only thing. Do this stuff. And what did he come along and say? Did God actually say? Did God actually say? And he's like, God's holding out on you. God's holding out on you. He gave you this other rule for one reason. Because he doesn't have your best interests at heart. And if you don't have some it is written. Man, you're just, you're dead meat. I don't know how to tell you any other thing. Man, you need to recommit with me. God convicted me this week. It's like, man, you've been kind of slacking off on just memorizing scripture. The only scripture you're memorizing is you're memorizing stuff for the sermon. Let's get back on that again. Get back on the train and make sure that this is a huge guardian for you. Do you have any? It is written. Because the temptation is, you know what? God's holding out on you, and the devil can meet that need. You need excitement? Try this. You need respect? Try that. You need appreciation? Why don't you try that? And what's Jesus' response? He quotes a verse from, of all books, the book of Deuteronomy. That was the place that many of you went and died on the year of the Bible reading plan. It's the book of Deuteronomy. Right? He went to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, and what he, he, just, he quotes, he says, you know what? Man is not lived by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He said, you know what, my relationship with God is more important than the bread having it right now. Here's an interesting thing. If you go back to that passage, he gives them manna. So they're in the wilderness and he gives them manna. You know what the word manna means? I mean, if you don't know, if you're new to Bible study, just think about like God's pouring out like cornflakes on his people day after day after day after day and providing for them where there's no. So the word manna actually means what is it? What is it? And what God was trying to tell those people and what Jesus is quoting is, what is it? What is it is the supernatural provision of God, that God can provide for whatever need you actually have. No matter what you're feeling right now, I want to feel a certain way, but it goes, there's another one, all right? There's another one. Look at verse 5. 
It's not just what I feel, but it says, then the devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, it's about 450 feet high, and said to him, if you are the son of God, which we're going to come, we're going to end with this, over and over again, he's going to identity, he's going to identity, he's... God has said, you know what, this is my beloved son, and all the time he's like, if you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, if you're the son of God. The church typically has terrible identity theology, typically. And so over and over again, we're like, this is what the gospel says, this is what God says, you are who God says you are, and that gave Jesus the confidence. He's like, you know what, he said I'm the son of God, but just recognize that if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, and the devil quotes the Bible, just so you know. Uh, anybody can proof text, all right? So when you hear somebody with some proof text about some crazy idea, it doesn't necessarily mean it's in context or for your good or for God's glory, because here's what he's doing. He will command his angels concerning you. This is Psalm 91. He will, he will command his angels concerning you. On their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Golly, it kind of makes sense. But then Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So it's just not about feeling something. The second stream or so that it goes through is like, I want to be something. I want to be something. This is what John would call the pride of life. So here's kind of what the scenario is. It's like, hey, Jesus, I got this deal. You jump off the pinnacle. This psalm says the angels, and you know, your father's not going to let you crash land. You know that. As a matter of fact, you do that, the angels take you down in this big spectacle in front of all of Israel, and you kind of flutter down there like it's like awesome, like some kind of, you know, Copperfield magic show, and, and all these people are like, he is the Messiah. That's what you came for anyway, right? I mean, that's what you came for. So let's just do it this way. This way will be better. It'll be easier. Why don't you show the world what a big deal you are? Jesus is like, why would I do that? Why would I put... <laughs> Why would I need God to prove what he has already declared over me? And so what is the pride of life and what does be something look like? Because Jesus said, you know what? I came not to be served but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Pride of life is the desire to be valued. It's the desire to be esteemed and it's the applause of man. It's the outward expressions of appreciation. It's about power. It's about position. It's about ego. It's about insecurity. It's about the applause of man versus the applause of God. And again, it's a, it's a good thing. Listen to me. This is a, it's, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be appreciated. There's nothing wrong with wanting the esteem of people. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be respected. But bottom line, what you see is when you take a good thing and you make it an ultimate thing, it ends up falling in on itself because it was never meant to hold you up. You take a good thing, you make it a God thing, it ends up becoming a very destructive thing because you and I make dumb decisions. We live for the applause of man, the esteem of man. Why would we do that? If we understand the gospel, what more approval do you need than that Jesus knew all your junk, all of your history, and still chose to down a cross for you? I mean, what more? I mean, good job, guy. Here's a gold watch. Nice shot on the course. I mean, how much more? Why do we need that more than we need? We already have the approval of God in Christ. And so what the pride of life does is like, man, it's about me, it's about my power, it's about my position. And again, why would we need to test God and see if he is telling the truth? One of the things I'm going to say at the end as well is this. If you're not able to say like Jesus, you know what, why do I need to test God? God's already said some stuff about who I am. There's a reason those kids sang that song, not just because they did that in VBS this week, but the truth of the matter is, your activity, the way you and I live our life, flows out of our identity. And I'll come back to that in a more. It's been said a ton of different ways. Your activity or your identity, write your biography, whatever it is. But let me just say this way. Your activity, how we live, flows from your identity. As a matter of fact, some Christians have got this idea. It's like, you know what? I'm just a sinner saved by grace, and I'm just a sinner saved by grace, and just, I'm just trying to get to heaven. Listen, is that true? That is true. That is true, but that's not the end of the story. That's not the end of the story. Are you a sinner saved by grace? Yes, you are. But you've also been given a new heart and a new creation and a new name and a new family and a new purpose, and all of those things have been given to you. So it's not just, I'm going to hold on until I get to heaven, that you can live for the glory of God now. All right, now you can. 
And so here's the last one. Go to this. Uh, I'll tell you what, before you put that up here, here's, let me give you this one thing. Two, things. two things that Satan and the enemy wants you to question all the time. This is so important. Two things, because a lot of times it's just a question. Just a question. It's not a flat, outright, God's a liar. It's usually not that blatant, especially with religious people. It's usually a question. And the question usually revolves around two main things. One of them is the word of God. All right, the word of God. And the second one usually is the work of God. Questions and just ask you to question the word of God. I mean, come on. Are you telling me that a book that was written by tons of different authors on different continents through different years has really got one story? Come on, you telling me that? You telling me the Apostle Paul, a single dude, should be writing about marriage? I mean, really? Really? That's what you're telling me? Well, did you know this source Q and so forth? Over and over again. Just doubt on the word of God, doubt on the word. And churches are doing the same, the same exact thing. Or even more subtly, do you think if all these great promises in this book were actually true, your life would be as messed up as it is? <laughs> come on, if, come on. If, you, if these are really true, would you really be in the situation you're in? Or the work of God, what Jesus did on the cross. Again, churches are doing this all the time. Let's stay away from the cross. Let's stay away from the blood. Let's stay away from the flogging. Let's stay away from the substitutionary atonement. Let's take even the songs that talk about the wrath of God. Take those out. (laughs) Really? But for us, what it might do, what would he say? Do you actually think that when Jesus stood up on the cross and says, it is finished, that that actually counted for you? I mean, what if all these other people knew the stuff that you've done? Do you think they'd look at you as a brother or a sister in Christ? I mean, come on now, girl. You know what you did. I know what you did. Your friend group knows what you did. So stop doing with this religious deal. So let me end it this way. Go to the last couple of verses. It says, again, this is the third stream. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and, and their glory. Their glory is like their stuff. It's all their stuff. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will just fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. It's not just feel something, it's not just be something. What's he promising here? He's promising here that you can have something, Jesus. His promise here is, what if I give all this stuff to you now, Jesus? No cross, no suffering, no blood, no breaking your mom's heart while she sits there and watches you die on a tree. I can give you a crown with no cross. I can give you a kingdom without a tomb. And it says he showed him, showed him the kingdom, the glory, all of that kind of stuff, which is kind of ironic because this is like prosperity preaching before prosperity preaching even got cool. It's like, listen, you can have all this kind of stuff. If the Father loved you, he's not going to let you go through this kind of trial and tribulation. I mean, you deserve a bunch of stuff. I mean, I thought the Father was a king. I thought he owned the cattle on a thousand hills. You should be eating good food not starving. You should be living in a big house, not some nasty, barren West Texas wilderness. You should have a a bunch of servants not left to tend to yourself. You know what that's called? That is called the lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes, the desire to have. It's it's what we feel when you go into a neighbor's house and you see their awesome countertops and you're like, man, I never thought about how bad our countertops were until I went into their house. And they got like a mixture of granite and quartz and diamonds or whatever their counters are. Amazing. And now you can't even look at your counters now because you're like, man, our counters are trash. I mean, our counters are trash. Or you just up late at night and you're like, hey, what should I do? What should I do? I know. I'll go on Amazon. And you go on Amazon and you see stuff that you have not thought about in years that you actually need. But you're on Amazon and you're like, hey, hey, get that thing over here quick. All right. Got a couple of warehouses here. I can get that thing tomorrow. Now, again. God's not against stuff. We talked about this. God's not against stuff as long as the stuff doesn't have you. As long as you don't buy into the whole trap, this will satisfy me. And we know that we have. And that's how some of us, you're you're in debt up to your eyeballs. It's not because you had a medical emergency and it's not because of the COVID pandemic. It's because you you made some stupid decisions, all right? You did. You just, you bought stuff you didn't need to try to impress people you barely even know. And all of a sudden you're paying 10%, 15% interest or 
worse, and you're like, man, what happened? What happened? What happened? Um, so here's what I just should say. Again, the Bible's not against your stuff. The Bible basically says three things about our stuff. When it comes to our stuff, it says, number one, enjoy some of it. First Timothy, man, enjoy some of your stuff. Enjoy some of it. I mean, spend some of it. It's God gave it. God's a good dad. He gave to his kids. Enjoy some of it. Give some of it away. All right? Be generous. And then save some of it. There's nothing wrong with multi-generational generosity down the pike, all right? You're like, well, I'm trying to save. Well, that saving is kind of a misnomer because you're going to save it, but you're eventually going to leave it as well. You're eventually going to leave it. Somebody else is going to get it, and they're going to enjoy it, and then they're going to hopefully share some of it, and they're going to also leave some of it. So here's, here's how do we end this? Um, let me ask you the question again. It is written. Do you have any it is written in your life? Do you have any it is written's in your life? Because here's what the it is written's are for. It's to combat the lies that come to you. The lies. Now, the lies are sometimes in our feelings and sometimes they're in our thoughts. And some, I, we've talked about this before, but you're like, you know what? You can't argue against the feeling. That's, yeah, you can. You can, really. Okay? It's, a feeling can be legitimate and incorrect at the same time. Now, husbands, I'm not telling you that you need to ever, 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 ever say these next 30 seconds if you're in an argument about feelings. And don't send them this sermon. I'm just saying this, okay? Feelings can be legitimate but inaccurate. I feel a certain way, but here's, what, here's the truth. A gospel-infused fact can change our feelings over time. Not overnight, but over time. Because there are some lies that get into your thoughts that you need to be able to say, it is written, it is written. So you're like, what would that be? Let me give you five or six real quick. You jot them down, and then i got a prayer for you. You're like, if, if that lie comes in, I'm unlovable, Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I can't be forgiven. I've done too much stuff. I'm not forgiven. Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. I am defined by my past. I'm defined by my past. I can never get past my past. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I can't trust God. I'm not sure I can trust God. I'm not sure he's going to be there every time. 2 Timothy 2, 13, even if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. I am condemned, I'm condemned, I'm condemned. Condemned means unfit for use. It's like I've done too much, I've been gone too long, and I've gone too far. I'm just condemned, I'm unfit for use. And the Bible says in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And you've got to understand that because here's the last little trick. The enticer, this is, a, this is such a cruel trick, but it happens to the best of us. The, he, the enticer, he will do the, uh, he will he will go from the enticer, hey, do this, do this, do this, and then when you bite on the hook, then he goes from the enticer to the accuser. He goes from the tempter to the condemner, all in like one fell swoop. He'll entice you with a promise and then condemn you with an accusation. And if you're a believer, that's the number one thing. You're going to feel worthless. Listen, if you feel worthless, that is not from God. If you're a believer and you feel worthless, that is from the enemy. But if you feel like you need to pivot like, this is wrong. i got to change course. i got to change direction. You know what? That's called conviction from an almighty God who loves you very much. And it's like, let's change direction. Just like little Elsie Grace, change direction. I'm going to go run back to my parent. That's what we need to do. So here's the prayer I wrote out, and uh, we're going to pray this. It's, I hesitate to do declarative things because I, want you, I don't want you to see this as a promise you're making to God. Because bottom line is, our promises are not that reliable. Okay? I mean, how many of us, what are we in now? June? How many of you all have actually stayed up with your New Year's resolutions? Case closed. So let me just, uh, here's, but we do, because we don't, we don't fight for the victory. We fight from the victory. So when I crafted this, I'm trying to craft it, craft it in a way your confidence is in God, not in your willpower. So I'm going to read it, and then we'll have you stand, and we're going to read it like we, you know, like with a little bit of a, I don't even know what the word I'm looking for, a little bit of a, uh, Swag. So temptation prayer. Here's what it says. Temptation, through the victory of the cross, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the encouragement of the saints. Those are the three tools in the toolbox. Okay. What did Jesus do? He won the victory. He gave us the person of the Holy Spirit to empower us to not live like we used to live, but you need some community around you to, to exhort you and encourage you. 
You will not, go ahead and put it back up. You will not, you will not, you will not. See, I was tempted to say something and I didn't. So that was, that was good. So you will not, you will not have my future. Some of you right now are one, because we're all one decision away from stupid, right? We're all one decision away. But some of you are right there on the edge of making a life-changing bad decision that is going to impact, it is going to impact your future. It is going to impact your family. There will be collateral damage. And it eventually will impact your faith. So here's what I'm going to do. I want you to stand whatever campus you're at. Hendersonville, you guys stand. Franklin, you guys stand. East, west, everybody stand. And again, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. We do a responsive kind of reading, but I'm going to actually lead you to this and then just pray for all of us because, again, here's what some of you are going to walk out of here and go, this is awesome. I'm never going to sin again. I mean, I, I remember leaving my ordination years ago from Palo Pinto, Texas, driving back. And the thought, I still remember the thought of how ludicrous it was, but I remember I just got ordained, you're the holy man, all this kind of stuff. I remember thinking, you know what, I don't think I'm ever going to sin again. I just don't think it's going to happen, all right? That lasted about 14 minutes. But so um, here, here's, here's the deal. So uh, I'm going to try to read it in a real deliberate way, maybe do it twice depending on how good you do on the first one. So um, one, two, three, temptation through the victory of the cross the power of the Holy Spirit, and the encouragement of the saints. You will not have my future, my family, or my faith. Very, very good. Tell you what, though, um, let's just do that last part again where it says you will not. And say this with a little determination, like, you know what? I'm making some decisions now. I'm going to make that phone call. I'm going to cut off this relationship. I'm going to get some accountability. I'm going to get in community. Because is this a reminder of what's at stake, okay? I'm going to start off with you will not. So one, two, three. You will not have my future, my family, my faith. Very good. Father, we want to thank you for a phenomenal episode in the Bible. It's phenomenal. Thank you that Jesus conquered temptation. Thank you that he did not sin. That about three years after this episode, he would be on a tree dying for our sin. And then three days after that, he would come up out of the grave victoriously. And God, that the Bible says the same power that brought him out of the grave lives on the inside of every believer. So God, help us to live up to our identity. Help our activity to match what you say about who we are. God, if we've messed up big time recently, help us to go to Romans 8.1 and say, you know what, I'm not condemned. I'm not condemned. I've got a Father who loves me. My sin is paid for, and I repent and run back to him. And we love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.